Welcome to the Refuge Church Podcast, where we long to see the lost saved, the saved transformed, and the transformed sent. For more information on Refuge Church, or to learn how you can give to this ministry, visit refugejacks.church. If you have your journal or you write in your Bible, kind of wherever you're taking notes, uh, all of chapter two needs to be framed like this. Ready? Like I'm going to give you something to write down. It's three words, uh, but it needs to be framed in such a way that you understand it. And that, those three words are born to die. That Jesus was born to die. That is the whole narrative of the chapter two of Luke. Oftentimes, man, we open to Luke and we see the beautiful Christmas story, which it is. But there needs to be a heaviness with which we see the Christmas story. Uh, And the Christmas story is the reminder that Jesus came to die. And so we've been walking through Luke, and the plan is, if you're unaware, to walk through Luke, uh, man, this fall, take a break around Christmas, jump back in in the spring, and to cover the whole book of Luke, uh, first nine chapters this fall, the rest of it leading us up to Easter in our lives, also to the Easter story in Luke as we go through it. So bring your journals, man, follow along as we do this. But I want to remind you, there's two main themes in Luke that are really encouraging to us. Luke wrote these books, or wrote this book and wrote these words, For two primary reasons, he would say. Number one, that you would have knowledge of Jesus. There's a lot of ideas about who Jesus was and what he was really about that often aren't in Scripture. They just sound really good. And he wants us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. And the way we do that is by walking through this book and looking at exactly what he said and who he said it to and what he cared about and what he was passionate about. And the other thing he wrote this book for is for a love for Jesus, to help you grow in love for Jesus, or, uh, scary word, but it shouldn't be, intimacy with Jesus. That you would grow deeper in love with him, more intimate in your walk with him. And the point being that a study of Luke, and over the next several months, will encourage us Man, uh, to have a better knowledge of and, and a deeper love for Jesus. And I would tell you that both of these are necessary in having a relationship with Jesus. Knowledge of and love for. When we struggle as Christians, if you're like me, more often than not, our, our faith becomes one-sided. Meaning we get really heavy in the knowledge part, like we know all about Jesus, but we, we don't feel an affection towards him. Or we become real affection or feelings driven, but we don't really have a knowledge of him. But both need to be present and pursued. Intimacy is another way of saying love for Jesus and depth or knowledge of Jesus. We need intimacy and depth. And that's what Luke is going to lay out for us. It can't all be feelings. It's all feelings we're in trouble and it can't all be truth because truth can sometimes feel very heavy if there's not feelings of affection as well. A pastor that I've admired for a long time, and I read this uh, when I was a new Christian in college, said this, He said, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The purpose of every man, he's saying, in our work, in our rest, in our families, in our relationships, in our passion, in our desires, is to glorify God, bring honor to God by enjoying God. And John Piper is saying, we honor God the most when we know him and enjoy him. 
And I would contend this is the point of our lives. Intimacy with Jesus that requires depth. And if you do nothing else, seek to spend time with God and enjoy God. If you've gotten away from this, can I just tell you that the Lord is patiently waiting on you to lean back in? He's not angry. He's not raising a fist at you. He's going, man, just come back. I'm here. I'm waiting. Lean in. Here's what I know from my own life. When, when intimacy with the Lord kind of wanes in me, man, my character tends to go away. That godly character and produced by walking with Jesus, tends to go away when intimacy lacks. When intimacy goes away, wisdom goes away. My wife would say, I become a fool when I stop walking with Jesus, right? When intimacy goes away, obedience goes away. It's harder to be obedient to the Lord in hard things when I'm not walking intimately with him. When intimacy goes away, discernment goes away. I'm unable to see good from bad, light from dark. And when intimacy goes away, my calling or my mission tends to fall away. There's a lot of talk even today about the deconstruction of faith. You, if you're a Christian, you may have followed someone who now is saying they're not even a believer anymore, that they've deconstructed their faith. And here, here would be what I really believe, that the deconstruction of our faith begins when intimacy with Jesus is neglected. And I said our on purpose. Because if we don't walk with God faithfully, we will begin to deconstruct ourselves. It's easy to ask those questions and not apply the real truth when Jesus is not near. And the deconstruction of our faith begins when intimacy with Jesus is neglected. And then I would remind you, when Luke said, man, love Jesus, knowledge of Jesus. And he said this, he used this phrase, Luke 1 verse 4. He said, I'm writing this to you so that you may have certainty. He's saying there can be a certainty about what we know and believe about Christ. So in all of that, if you'll look at verse 21... And then we'll go all the way, man, kind of to the end of the chapter, but, but we'll take it one verse at a time. Luke 21, two, chapter 2, verse 21 says, And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple according to the law. And Jesus is being presented at the temple. This is what he's supposed to do. Eight day, eighth day, get circumcised, be presented at the temple, firstborn. But this also provided something for Mary and Joseph. See, if you, if you were here last week, you, you heard Stephen talk about the birth of Christ. Mary and Joseph being mom and dad. And it's got to be telling for a mom and dad to hear, hey, you're going to have a child. I've been there several times. But also to hear, not only are you going to have a child, but it's going to be God wrapped in flesh. So one of the things that's going to happen in this next several verses is there's going to be a confirmation in Mary and Joseph's heart about who Jesus is. Imagine for a minute being Mary and Joseph. If you have had a child, you know what it's like, especially when you have the first child, that every movement they make, every noise they make, you think something's wrong. Is it just me? You don't sleep. Maybe you're a horrible person. Like our second night home, I was so tired, I just slept at the night and said, Beth, good luck. It was really gracious of me, Okay. But, but, but man, I can remember when Hannah came home and for those first few hours, like she moved, her finger wiggled, like you would kind of panic and her fingers wiggled just like yours, Josh, right? When having a baby, man, can be overwhelming, much less when it's your first child. But can you imagine having Jesus as your first child? Got to imagine on some level, Joseph went, could, could Jesus be like our fourth? Could we get three runs out of the way and on the fourth one, like that be the one? God wrapped in flesh. Can you imagine the level of anxiety of not wanting to screw that up? All right, Joseph, don't drop Jesus. 
Like, I, I've even wondered, like, what would it be like? Jesus is crying, honey. Like, you don't let Jesus just cry, right? I also imagine there were a ton of questions for Mary and Joseph. Why us? How is this even possible? And, and again, why? And, and here's what Mary and Joseph get to experience here that I would encourage you to see. That in a world filled with uncertainty, God never leaves us with the uncertainty of who he is. See, on the eighth day, Mary and Joseph are provided with the certainty of who Christ is. And in the very same way, man, God never leaves us with the uncertainty of who he is. Man, our certainty in life, in good and in bad, and in suffering and in loss, and gain is in who God is and in his character. Listen, you and I may not know the outcome, what's next, what tomorrow holds, what next week holds. I mean, the last year and a half has proven that. Even what we remembered yesterday with 9-11 has proven that. But we can know with certainty who God is. And oftentimes, it's in that certainty we're able to continue and remain faithful. Listen, there is comfort and peace in knowing who God is, even in the hardest of days. There is one of the things I love about being reminded of who God is, is, is God puts me in my place. Oftentimes I think, well, I'm necessary or, or I'm important. And then I'm reminded, maybe I'm not. Knowing who God is brings me humility. I am not God. He is. His ways are higher. His ways are better. Knowing who God is allows me to trust. God never leaves us with the uncertainty of who he is. I mean, think about what scripture teaches, his incomprehensibility. He's so big and so vast We can't even think about him properly, but he also is knowable. The Bible teaches we have a God who is approachable. The Bible gives him names like Alpha and Omega, which mean first and last. He's before all things and he's at the end of all things. And in the middle, Colossians 1 says, and in him all things hold together. The Bible calls him Yahweh or Jehovah, Father, Lord, the mighty one, El Shaddai, the powerful one. I love this name. This is in Exodus over and over. The one who is. He's father, he is son, he is spirit, and his attributes, man. He is full of knowledge. He is the source of wisdom. He is perfectly holy, and he is altogether good. And so I'm saying all that to remind us, church, that we may not know the outcome or what tomorrow holds or what is next, but we can know with certainty who God is. And when we know the who, the what can often seem less significant. And so since Jesus has been born into a human family, because of his family, he's born in the Mosaic law and he had to follow the law. So he gets circumcised on the eighth day. And then you see in verse 22, and when the time came for purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or or two young pigeons. So this the sacrifice they should make, if you go back and do all the sacrificial stuff, is because of the firstborn son, they should bring a lamb. But what we learn here by their sacrifices, they were actually incredibly poor. The poverty of Jesus' parents was obvious in their sacrifice. Two turtle doves, which is the allowed sacrifice if a lamb cannot be afforded. I say all that to say, man, this would have an element of shame attached. And here... I mean, we see the parents of Jesus 
And I can't imagine that Joseph didn't have feelings of I can't even sacrifice well, yet I'm supposed to raise Jesus? And here we again see that Christianity always begins with need. That we have needs. We have a need for salvation. We have a need for hope for tomorrow. We have a need for our daily bread. And here we also see the humble and lowly state that Christ is born into. And as Stephen framed for us last week so well, this king, King Jesus, does not show up how we think he should. There's no red carpet, no crown or robe, no riches or gold, but humble, lowly, an upside-down kingdom. Because this king comes not to be served, but to serve. A king born to die for his people. And it's why I had you right down to start and that he is born to die. Verse 25 says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. So you see, you're going to get the accounts of two different people. Simeon, who's really old, and Anna, who's even older. And Simeon and Anna, they're not a couple. Man, but, but these are two examples of faithfulness to the people of God. And all they come in contact with, it is, becomes very obvious that they are fully devoted to God. When you look up this idea of being fully devoted to God, it actually means that you're faithful over time. See, it's one thing today to say, I'm going to be fully devoted to God. But it's another thing to live a hundred years as this Anna woman had, and for her life to be marked by one who was fully devoted to God. They were both prophets, meaning the ones who spoke for or before and they were both filled with hope and expectancy. Did I say that word right? I struggled earlier. Anyway, no one's going to help me. Thank you. So both Simeon and Anna exemplified to all what righteous living looked like. Waiting on mercy and grace, the mercy of grace of God to come in human form. And here again, we see waiting. If you haven't picked up on this, in the first several chapters of the book of Luke points at waiting, the thing we love to do. Wait, waiting on God, waiting on what's next, waiting on tomorrow, waiting on hope to be revealed. God uses, can I just remind you one more time? And if you haven't written this down, I would encourage you that God uses waiting to drive us towards intimacy with him. God uses our waiting to drive us towards intimacy with him. Because what I know about my heart and probably about yours, if you're honest, is if we got what we wanted when we wanted it, most of us would not choose to love God faithfully all the days of our lives. And so verse 29 says, well, I'll need to back up and finish. Um, verse 26, and it, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So verse 26 tells us that Simeon, it had been revealed to Simeon that he would not face death until he had met the Messiah or Jesus. And he came into the spirit, into the temple. And when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God saying, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. That word depart means die. He's saying, I have seen Jesus. I am ready to die. Simeon encounters Jesus and all is made right. His life has fulfillment almost that takes place. His, his questions, his doubts, his fears, they, they tend to go away. For Simeon, his wait is over, and the one who will give grace and mercy has arrived. And he looks up and he says, 
I can die now. That word departed or died is, is the same word. And in, 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 in like back in the day, they would say when one spouse passes and the other one doesn't, and the other one longs to pass to be with the other spouse. And they would say, Lord, take me. It's kind of the same concept. Lord, take me. Let me, let me go on as well. And in the presence of God, all the waiting and suffering and seem to fade away until all that remains is Jesus. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean forever. Like this idea that in the presence of God, all waiting and suffering fade away until all that remains is Jesus means when I'm in his presence, in those moments, even in the darkest of suffering, and that can fade away in those moments because I'm with Jesus. Listen, Simeon met Jesus and his response is, I can die now. I can die now. And then this, what follows is this beautiful poem from Simeon. Look what he says. Verse 30, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. He says, I have looked on Jesus and I've seen how you're going to save the world. My eyes have seen your salvation. My church, have you seen Christ's salvation? Have you seen him save? Do you have a list somewhere where you're asking God to bring salvation to people who you know? Maybe who you will know one day. Men, do you see the Savior is worthy? And do you see the salvation he offers? Verse 31 says, he continues, he says, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. He's saying the one that God is preparing has come. And then he says something really interesting in verse 32. He says, and this, and this king is going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. A light to the Gentiles means salvation to the lost. If you're unaware, Gentiles believed they were hated by God and could not be saved. And people treated them as such because they also believed it. And here you see Simeon going, a light to the Gentiles. Hope for those who believe they are hopeless. And then it says glory to Israel. And the idea there has been hope and waiting fulfilled. Those are who are waiting on the Messiah. Verse 33 and Simeon blessed them, and, and to his mother, to Mary, his mother, he said this. Now, that there's that word. I was a word I want you to highlight. It says, "Behold, this child is," and the word is appointed. And it says, "For the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed." But he uses this word appointed. He says, "The child is appointed." That word appointed actually means laid down. We see appointed, we think appointment, but it's not what it means at all. That word means to lay down, laid down, which is where we get the idea that he is born to die. Please hear me. This is Simeon looking at Jesus' parents saying, your baby is born to lay down his life and die. Now, I don't know about you, but we don't hope that someone would say that to us as we hold our newborn, right? But this is exactly what he's saying. This man of God is saying, this is why he was born. And this is the truth and the encouragement to us. This child is appointed for the rising and the fall of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts and many hearts will be revealed. Appointed, a life laid down, born to die. Jesus is the King and the Savior who was born to die. And his first words that are said about Jesus was he is appointed is to lay down his life. And then take note of what he says after that. He says, for the fall of many, the knowledge of God through Jesus, will lead to condemnation for many. The truth and true belief and true hearts will be revealed. He's saying that some will reject Jesus and the salvation he offers. 
listen, if I could pause and just and have you write this down if you've never written it down, I, I would tell you this, but I want to tell you something about it. And what Simeon is painting here the picture of very early on, and that the, what the Bible is very clear on is this. Salvation comes through Christ alone. The fact that he is born to die and the fact that he comes and these things being said about him are the revelation that salvation comes through Christ alone. Not through works, not through another religion, that the only way we are saved and spend eternity with God is through Christ alone. God's not at the top of a mountain. Find your way to him. Be a good person if you do enough good deeds. There is one play, one way to eternal life with Christ, and it's through Jesus, Christ alone. Now in saying that, I would love to also be very clear that Jesus never weaponizes that phrase to anyone he ever ministers to with the gospel. This phrase is not a, God, not a weapon that we cast on other people who don't know Christ. It is a grace bestowed upon us that we should desire to bestow on other people. And that salvation comes through Christ alone. And he offers that to any who would respond. And maybe you're here this morning, you have never heard the gospel that Christ came to die for your sins. And salvation comes through Christ alone. We sing a song in here pretty often, and it says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. We sing this song because we are declaring that Christ alone is all. And he says, in the rising of many, he says, intimacy with Jesus will bring many to salvation. Salvation is offered to any who would believe. He's saying not just the Jewish, not just the people of Israel, not just the religious, but even the worst of sinners. Think about who Jesus offered salvation to on earth. We're going to see these. He's going to offer it to a criminal on a cross who with his last breath, breath is going to say, can I go with you to paradise? A woman literally caught in the act of adultery, thrown at Christ's feet. He offers her forgiveness and salvation. Matthew, the corrupt tax collector, salvation offered. Man, Jesus will bring many to salvation, but it's through Christ alone that he saves. And salvation is offered to any, any who would believe. And then he says this, and he will reveal thoughts and hearts. This is, this is, this is, I think this next part is like for the church. Jesus will reveal or shed light on what is really in our hearts. This is why the knowledge of and intimacy with Jesus are so important. Listen, Intimacy with Jesus fleshes out what's really in our hearts, does it not? Like, we can't be wiling out, doing meth, if you will, and try to sit with the Lord faithfully. We can't have intimacy with Jesus and live a life of total rebellion because he's constantly revealing thoughts and hearts and avoidances. And the great benefit of intimacy with Jesus is he won't let you run very far. And that's an amazing thing. As I continue to go after him, he's going to go, you can, no, nope, you're not going that far, Josh. Come back. Because I'm better than that. And, and the reason we're saying and pushing, and you hear me man, beating this, this drum of intimacy with Jesus, is it's the thing that keeps us tethered to Christ. Although he holds our salvation it's the thing that keeps us tethered. I mean, intimacy with Christ is a key to experiencing proper spiritual growth. Growth in favor with God and in favor with men. When we submit our lives in intimacy with Christ, Scripture actually teaches two things happen. When we submit, men, our lives to intimacy with Christ, two things happen. Number one, our posture begins to come like Isaiah 6. Here I am, God, send me. 
Meaning everywhere we go, we are sent, as we say here all the time. We go on a mission. The other thing that happens, Romans 12, 1, we begin to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's what that means. It means worship doesn't just happen while I'm over here singing a song I like. Like, I stand amazed. Was that not incredible? Like, that's not the only thing that happens. But man, day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, I'm choosing to worship, to give my life as a form of worship. So when we submit to Christ, we walk in intimacy with him. We begin to live out a life of worship and a life that says sent. And then this lady, Anna, appears, as we talked about earlier. Verse 36, there's this prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, which is a really nice way of saying she was incredibly old. And she lived with her husband for seven years, and then she was a virgin. And, and then uh, as a widow, she was for 84 years. And she did not depart from the temple. Look what her role was. This is incredible. It wasn't even a God-given role, just she did this. Worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him, speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so it gives us that for 84 years as a widow, she would show up to the temple and remind people he's worth waiting on. Keep waiting. He's worth waiting on. He's going to redeem us. Keep waiting for the Redeemer. And the picture that it paints is her faithfulness and waiting leads her to seeing Jesus' face before her death. And then you get this last account, if we can close out Luke together, of the boy Jesus in the temple. And I grew up in church hearing this story as, look at Jesus, watch him not listen to his parents, you go listen to your parents. That is not at all what's happening here. Because that would be saying that he sinned and he didn't sin. So so you can read with me, verse 41 says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Feast of Passover is the Easter of the Jewish calendar back in the day. Okay, there was not a greater religious holiday to celebrate. And when he was 12 years old, so at 13 he would become an adult by their standards, uh, they went according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. Look how bad of parents Mary and Joseph were. And the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. He's 12, and his parents didn't know. But listen, but supposing, so if you're a parent like I am, we have to not suppose anything about our kids ever, right? But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Verse 46 says, after three days, they found him in the temple. Listen, if I leave my kids for like eight minutes, something has burned down or something has gotten colored on that doesn't get colored on. But three days... And he was sitting among teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when the parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house with a capital F with his earthly father standing right there? He's drawing a distinction of who he is. And they did not understand the saying, and he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in the favor of God with man. And so we read this account and we go, why would Jesus do that? And we miss the whole point. Listen, the focus here is not the boy. But listen, his family is heading to Jerusalem as they did every year to remember and celebrate the Feast of Passover. This was the greatest holiday on their calendar. This was their Easter in every sense. The Feast of Passover was remembering and celebrating how God had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. 
Man, a biblical understanding of this is huge, that, that Passover was the celebration of, man, when this took place in Exodus, a sacrificial lamb was, was slain as an offering to God. And you were to take the blood back in the day of the Israelites and put it on the doorpost that night because the Lord was going to be passing through one night on his way throughout the city to take all the lives of the firstborn. And he would pass over any home that has the blood of the lamb on its doorpost. And this was a picture of the salvation to come only through the blood of Christ, the spotless lamb, where salvation would be offered. And so the Passover lamb, Jesus, is about to experience the Passover feast with his people. There's an incredible thing happening here. And so when we started off by saying he came to die, he came to die. He came to live a perfect life because you and I cannot He was born to die. He was appointed to die for my sin and yours. And he serves us and he demonstrates his love for us by laying down his life for us. This is the gospel, Jesus in my place. And what irony that the child Jesus, the Passover lamb, the king of all creation, the one born to die is celebrating with them, about them, about himself while with them. He's celebrating what he's done and what he's going to do. And can can I just tell you, man, and if you get this, it it ties so many things together in our hearts, that this is Jesus's posture towards you and I. Like, can can you imagine sitting there and going, hey, I should actually be mad at you because you've sinned and I have to die because you sinned. But instead, he celebrates with them. Man, this is his posture towards us. He loves us so deeply that he longs to celebrate his suffering and death with us. And what an incredible act of love. He loves us so deeply that he longs to celebrate his suffering and his death with us. It's not held against us in shame or condemnation like I can't believe you did that, but it's offered daily for renewal and for salvation. And and to do this daily, this is the point of all the intimacy, intimacy talk, that he was born to die for you and for me and for everyone who would call on him as Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. We thank you for your word and your truth. God, the reminder that you came to die to lay your life down in my place because I can't. God, your perfect, spotless, sinless life in my place to offer me salvation even though I can't earn it God and even now though I still daily sin and fall short you still desire to celebrate your suffering and death with me because of your love for me and if you're, if you're in the room this morning and you've never placed faith in this Christ we're talking about and, and you would like to do that, I would just simply encourage you to pray this quietly in your heart. God, would you forgive me of my sins? And God, would you save me? And God, would you become Lord of my life? If you prayed something like that or want to talk more, I'll be up here to my left after the service. would love to chat with you. Or maybe you're here and you're, you just have acknowledged at some point in the service that, man, your intimacy with the Lord has grown cold. You don't really walk or talk with or pray with. You're not getting in the word at all. Maybe this is the best time to confess that to the Lord and ask him to renew you. 
God, I pray that you would draw us to you. I pray you would meet us where we are. God, you know every heart in the room. And I pray you would draw us to you. God, we need you and we love you. Amen.